happen for a reason? What is God's providential care? We examine these topics and more as we begin a study in the book of Esther on this week's episode of Through the Bible. Today's episode was recorded at Winrock Baptist Church in Abilene. Okay, we're going to kind of <clears throat> do a little review this morning and and see if we can't uh, pick up at the beginning of the book of Esther and, and for the sake of some continuity for the rest of the book, just kind of go over it a little bit and see if we can kind of get it to <clears throat> get it to flow into the rest of it a little bit. I know we already went over it a little bit last week, but we're going to look at it again, so let's Let's turn to the book of Esther, Esther chapter 1. The book of Esther has 10 chapters in it. It has 167 verses and has 5,633 words, which sounds like a lot, but it just basically would be considered um, a novella if you were going to write a book, so it's not what I would call heavy reading. Uh, The most outstanding thing to me about the book of Esther is that it never mentions God at all in the whole book, but it implies God in the things that uh, go on. And the book of Esther is an example of of where in the New Testament it tells us that all things work together for good to those that love the Lord. Uh, There's other verses that say, you know, that uh, things can be meant for evil and God can mean it for good. God can take a bad situation and he can bless in the right areas and and turn it into something positive. But that does not mean that God wants bad things to happen to his people. He doesn't. And the book of Esther, I think, is a a great illustration of that. Uh, The book of Esther deals primarily with the captives that remained in uh, Persia after the king had allowed them to go back and begin to build the temple and to build the wall. Ezra and Nehemiah talk about the captives that went back to the promised land. Esther is a book that talks about the captives that stayed. We had, um, you know, several groups here. We had the the groups that went back and began work on the temple. Then we had the group that went back to build the walls. And then Esther deals with the group that had to stay. And what this is telling us and showing us is the providential care of God for his children throughout the whole world. No matter where those children might happen to be, God can providentially care for him. Um, our 
Christian forefathers understood a, a pretext for Christian living that is seems to be completely lost upon the modern day uh, Christian, especially the Christian that is termed the evangelical Christian. And that is the uh, doctrine that we can illustrate vividly in the Bible that our forefathers called the providential care of God. And what that means is that God working by second cause. God's, in other words, not directly. And there are some circumstances in the Bible where God worked directly, but after a period of time, God worked providentially. And that's how God works today. He works by second cause. God works by blessing or withdrawing blessings in particular places. Uh, for instance, you know, a lot of us have had circumstances where we've been sick in our lives. We've had things that's happened to us. And if we weren't or hadn't been at a certain place at a certain time, that we would have probably died. And that was God providentially blessing his children and helping us. God didn't want us to have this problem, but providentially he provided a blessing for us that we'd be able to um, take care of that problem in some way. Bless you with a doctor that figured out something that five more doctors couldn't figure out. Bless you by being a certain place at a certain time. Um, there's a couple different times in my life I, I had planned to be at one place and something prevented me or hindered me from being there and as it turned out it was a good thing I wasn't there. These are the providential blessings of God. And in Esther, we get to see, because we're getting to look at it from a third-person point of view, exactly how the, the intricate ways that God blessed his people. Now, <clears throat> during this uh, period of time here, the king... And, and I'm going to call him Xerxes because that's easier for me to say than the Hebrew pronunciation as the Greek pronunciation. But he was the king during this day and time. Now, if you study history, and I think it's I think it really helpful to gain a greater understanding of the Bible if we understand history a little bit. I was always fascinated by history my whole life. I've always been interested in history. And it, I've always been especially interested when history coalesced or um, crossed paths with biblical things uh, as it pertained to. And, of course, Xerxes was a very prominent king in history because he was um, arguably the most powerful man during this time. And throughout the Bible, the Bible is concerned with what king had control? <coughs> Excuse me, had control over the promised land. Okay. Now, folks, that ain't changed. That's not changed. We have we have a tendency to believe or feel like that America is the center of all things, and maybe in our smaller sphere that Texas is a small is the center of smaller things. You know, but 
from God's point of view, and, and I want to get real specific here, the city of Jerusalem is the center of the world. Everything revolves around that, okay? All history revolves around that. And anytime you hear this, and, and you listen to what I'm saying here, anytime you hear someone talk about prophecy, and it doesn't place the promised land and Jerusalem at the center of that prophecy, it's going to be way off. It's going to be way off. Greece had a tremendous amount of power and history going on during this day and time. The Bible does not talk very much about Greece at this, at this point. And the reason why is because Persia was ruling over the promised land. So Persia is what figured prominently in Bible writings. And Xerxes at this time was in contention with Greece. He wanted to conquer Greece and take over basically all the known world. He was ruling the majority of the known world at that time. But the Greece still um, excise quite a bit of power in their uh, theater of where they lived. And history talks a lot about Xerxes and his battles with Greece. Now, um, this was uh, <clears throat> uh, written back in around 400 years before um, the advent of Jesus, 486 to 464 is primarily the time period when this is written. Um, the authorship of Esther is not really known, but the two main culprits that are suspicious to have wrote it are either Ezra or Mordecai. Personally, I kind of feel like probably Mordecai wrote it. It makes the most sense. The, the style of writing, the verbiage, and the way that he wrote it doesn't really match anything like the way Ezra wrote to me. Uh, and it seemed to me that Ezra was more concerned with what was going on in the Promised Land than what was going on in, in uh, uh, Persia proper. And uh, Mordecai was concerned what was going on with uh, Persia proper because that's where his immediate family was. Uh, not saying that he didn't care about Jews worldwide, he did, but, you know, this was something that touched him personally. So I, I probably kind of feel like that. You can't prove it one way or the other. You can't prove who wrote it. Nobody can. But that's the most two logical explanations. And like I said, for me personally, I think Mordecai was probably uh, the author. Uh, <clears throat> now, it came in here in chapter 1 of verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass in the days of Xerxes, um, which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia, over a hundred and seven and twenty provinces, that in those days when the king Xerxes sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the palace, which is about 150 miles north of the Persian Gulf, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the province being before him. Okay, now if we look back in history and we look at Xerxes' reign during the third 
um, year of his reign, what was going on at this day and time is he was making preparations to go and defeat Greece. And in other words, he wanted to go and whip the Grecians and take over um, the Grecian Empire. That was what his goal was. So what history tells us was going on here is he was trying to gain support from everyone in his kingdom. Now, you might say, why was he having to get support from people in his own country? Well, as you can see from what we looked at in Nehemiah and Ezra, there was a lot of things that went on that the king just didn't hardly have any control over because of the distances. And there were, communication was a big deal back in this day and time. I mean, you had pigeons, camels, horses, and donkeys, and walking. None of those things are really too fast. It ain't like a, a cell phone, you know. You can't do a Skype call back then. I mean, you couldn't do any of these things. Uh, there was no instantaneous communication, and this made it difficult to garner support. And uh, it's just like today, it is difficult for whoever the president is is in office if he can't garner enough support to get the things done that he wants to get done. And that's never been any different. Even if you're a king, you need your people to support you and support you monetarily and physically and, uh, you know, emotionally to a great deal. And so he had gathered all these people together, and for a couple of months here, he was kind of throwing a big shindig for all these dignitaries, these people who ruled in these 127 provinces, and he was bringing all these men together, and, and, and I, when I say men, I actually mean men in this particular circumstance. He was bringing all these men together and he was doing it to gain their support. He was trying to show them how great of a guy he was so he could get the support that he needed to go and defeat Greece. That's what he wanted to do. Now, when I said men, while the men were doing this, the ladies, the wives, the <clears throat> the daughters, you know, the, the uh, significant others in these leaders' lives, all the women were having their own shindigs and get-together, which would have been presided over by Vashti. So uh, when you just read this, you know, in kind of a cursory way, you sort of get the idea that Vashti was just maybe sitting around in her room not doing much. But that wasn't what was going on. She was entertaining the ladies. She was basically doing what the king was doing, but she was doing it with the women. Now, I think that's pretty smart. You need to have the wives' support as much as you do the husbands. Because, hey, when the husband goes home, who's he talking to? He's talking to his wife. She can put the bug in his ear about which thing she thinks they ought to do, if the king's really great or is not. So Vashti, folks, was doing a job. You think she wasn't? but she was. Now, you have to kind of look at history to see what was actually going on on the political arena as to why he was doing this. This wasn't just like, hey, let's have a party because it's time to do it. That, that wasn't what it was. 
This was politically motivated. It ain't no different today. The same kind of things go on. Uh, I don't know how many uh, men I've heard say that in Washington, most deals are done at cocktail parties. They have parties continually. I mean, you. I heard a freshman congressman one time how it just blew his mind when he got elected and went to Washington. It wasn't anything like what he thought. He said it's just one party and get together after another, people trying to talk you into doing things. He said that's that's what it is. And he said you, you think it's just going to the Capitol and voting on stuff, but he said that's the last part of it. He said the deals aren't made there. <clears throat> and the same thing goes on here. If he wanted the support to do what he needed to do, he had to kind of smooth with the people a little bit, the people that were running things. Even though they worked for him, you can't force someone to be loyal. You can't force somebody to like what you're doing. You need a little bit of uh, enthusiastic encouragement. <clears throat> now, on verse Verse 10 down here, it says, On the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman and Bistha and Harbona, Bigtha and Abatha and Zethar and Carcass, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Xerxes the king, to bring Vashti the queen before the king, with the crown royal to show the people and the princess her beauty, for she was fair to look on. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. Now, she was supposed to do what the king said. But here's what she said. She's saying, hey, they've been having this party for two months. This is the last week of the party. This is the last day of the party. And to put it bluntly, he's drunk. The Bible says marry with wine, and folks, that's what it means. It means he was drunk. Now, that's not a flattering reflection upon a king, but it's the truth. And like I said before, if you'll study history a little bit, King Xerxes did not have a history of making good decisions. He did stupid stuff. Stupid stuff he did. When he was in battle going against the Greeks, he there a storm came up and capsized his pontoon boats and he couldn't get his troops across this uh, narrow gulf. And... He ordered his men to get chains and go and beat the ocean because he was mad at it. So, folks, this is not a guy that just exudes intelligent deliberation in the things he does. So, I mean, a lot of times, I mean, I've heard several sermons where the preacher preached, you know, that Vashti was a bad wife because she didn't obey her husband. But, folks... If the husband's not behaving the way that he needs to behave, it's not really incumbent upon a wife to do what he says, you know. He needs to earn that respect. 
He needs to earn her honor. He needs to love her like Christ loved the church. All these things I just said are, are biblical. The Bible talks to us about that. Esther is a good book for us to read and study and to learn a little bit about relationships and how they work. You, you Instead of going down to the bookstore and, and getting the latest book on relationship, because that changes, you ought to just look at the Bible. It'll tell you. It'll tell you exactly. And you know what? And this is just a little interesting side note. You know, Jesus said that we're supposed to to uh, study the Psalms. He gave us biblical authority to bring what the Psalms say into New Testament doctrine. Jesus Christ did. In the Hebrew Bible, Esther is part of the Psalms. So when Jesus said that, he was referring to Esther as well. Now a lot of people don't know that or don't realize that, but you can look it up. It's a fact. So the king, of course, he got mad because she made him, she embarrassed him in front of all of his drunk friends. Because, folks, I guarantee you, if the king's married with wine, 99% of the rest of them probably were too. Now, it wasn't incumbent upon people to, to drink or get drunk. They didn't have to. And, and there was a lot of people that didn't or wouldn't or whatever. But I, I guarantee if the king was, there was a whole lot of people that wanted to buddy it with the king and were just doing just exactly what he was doing. And she didn't want to be part of it, much to her credit, you know. She had decided she was going to have a little bit more dignity than that. You can't really blame her. The problem is he's the king, and even though he gets mad and gets drunk and it ain't right, he's still the king. Uh when he told them, fellas, y'all go grab some chains and start beating the ocean, they got after it. You know, hey, he's the king. You got to do what he says. And and you can re- he did all kinds of stupid stuff. He made bad decisions one after another. And I mean, we're, we're going to read and study about something that he did here. But as punishment, he tells Vashti, I just ain't going to have nothing to do with you no more. We're done. Uh. So being a queen in this day and time, being a Persian queen, didn't have much, didn't have much power, didn't have much authority. It was something that was given mainly lip service to. She was queen at, you know, whatever the king thought at that time. He could make anybody queen he wanted. It was totally up to him. Now, History, that they've only so far, I believe, only been able to find one queen listed. Um, and, and these things change a lot because they find new stuff all the time. But the last time I looked and studied on it, they'd only found a reference to one queen that was Xerxes' wife. Um, I can't, it wasn't Esther and it wasn't Vashti, it was some other woman at Apparently, she was the very first queen that he had when he became king. Now, primarily, when a king um, married or or developed or got himself a wife, it was for political reasons. He married a woman who was the daughter of some king in another country, 
the daughter of somebody from a big province to gain support of those people because they say, hey, you know, our um, uh, someone who's one of us is queen and things like that. So they didn't just have one wife, but he generally only had one queen at a time. But he could have a thousand wives, but he would just say, this one's queen. Kind of a weird way to do things, but that's the way they did things. It is not uncommon for a king to forget that a woman was his wife. They they would just forget about him. They would marry him and maybe spend a day or two with him, and they'd go back to the harem, and he'd go back. uh, Other women come in, and he'd completely forget about her. Because if he didn't mention her or ask for her anymore, nobody said a word. Scared to say something to a fellow that can just have your head removed because he's in a bad mood. And that's kind of the way it was. So, <clears throat> down here towards the uh, latter part of this chapter 1, um, he begins to, uh, the idea is put to him that, hey, let's sort of make it like a contest, kind of a beauty contest. We're going to gather all the most beautiful women of the realm of all 127 provinces and you're going to pick one and make her the queen now instead of Vashti. And so the king, he kind of liked that idea. He thought that was pretty cool. So this is what they did. And these girls were required to have 12 months of preparation before they could come in into the king. So... When you read this, you sort of get the idea that these things happen pretty quickly, but actually a great deal of time passed between the beginning of the book of Esther and the end of the book of Esther. You know, years passed during that time. Because Esther, after this initial party, when he got mad at uh, Vashti, and then he started the deal about the having picking the virgins and want them to be a queen, a great deal of time had passed because, like I said before, if you study and look at history, before he comes back, right after this party, he leaves and he goes himself to go and whip the Greeks. Now, if you've studied anything about that, it didn't work out so good for him. Um, The Greeks decided that they were not going to be conquered. And he underestimated their tenacity. He thought that he would overwhelm them more with numbers. Now, he had more troops. He seemingly had better resources. But the Greeks were just, they were just horrible, terrible fighters. And I mean that in a good way, in that you did not want to go against them. Um you know, you probably heard the 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 there's a poem about it, and then there's a, a and a historical account written about when during this time King Xerxes attempted to go and whip the Spartans, and 300 Spartans um, defeated or kept back 7,000 troops of King Xerxes. These men were just not afraid to die, and they started teaching them to be warriors and fighters when they come out of the womb. 
So these are guys you do not want to mess with. And uh, yeah, one way or the other. I mean, and they were just raised and lived this life. Well, it's it's tough to fight people like that. It's really tough. And he he just didn't fare well. He eventually whipped them three hundred guys, but it was a it was a terrible price that he paid for that. He lost thousands of men to that. And I mean, the Spartans considered it a victory, even though they lost because they killed so many of the other guys. I mean, even Spartan women were were good warriors and. This back in this day and time, it was generally men fought and women didn't, but not not in Sparta. Everybody learned to use a sword. So this is this is kind of the the time period. This is kind of the place that all of this all of this was going on. So you can see that when he comes back and these virgins have been being prepared for him, he is probably not in the best humor. Because his grand plan that he wanted to do, and this is something that his father didn't couldn't get done, and that's conquering the Greek Empire, and he wanted to do what his dad couldn't do, and he couldn't do it either, and he was not in a good mood. And that you know, you can like I said, you can study and look at history, and it'll tell you that he did a whole bunch of other things because he was in a bad mood. He did some dumb things. Um, it's just beyond me how, you know, someone can do some of the things that he did that showed little intelligence, but yet have so much um, power over the world. And this is the kind of people that the devil tried to use to end God's people, because that's what he tried to do. And he was kind of falling for it. So after all the deal happened with Esther, then here in chapter 2 we have that where Esther was made king. It says, after these th- a queen, after these things, when the wrath of King Xerxes was appeased, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed against her. Then said the king's servants that ministered to him, let there be fair young virgins sought for the king. Let the king appoint officers in the provinces and kingdom that many gathered together all the fair young virgins unto Shusham. Now, so Esther, who was the actual, actually she, she was the cousin of Mordecai. She wasn't his daughter, but he, he looked after her because her parents were dead. And here in this verse, uh, which one is it? Well, <clears throat> anyway, it talks about, uh, that uh, Mordecai was someone who had been brought in from the captivity. Now, if you if you read it real close, what it's really saying is Mordecai's grandfather was brought in from the captivity because this is this occurrence is 150 years after the king of Babylon went in and sacked Jerusalem and brought him in. So Mordecai was the grandson of the initial person who was brought in. His grandfather was the one who was brought in, and Mordecai was raised in Persia. Esther was raised in Persia. Now, after all this happened, and the year of um, preparation was made, 
Esther goes in to the king. She becomes the king's queen. He likes her better than all the rest of them. And she ain't the only one who interviewed for the job. Let's put it that way. But she is the one that he picked. She made an impression upon him. You know why? Because God was with her. God blessed her. He wanted to use Esther because Esther was the type of person who wanted to be used of God. Now here's a very pivotal and important circumstance here that you need to remember throughout the rest of the book of Esther. And that's chapter 2 starting at verse 19. is something that Mordecai did that really had an impact. Chapter 2 and verse 19, And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai sat in the king's gate, which was a common thing to do in this day and time. People would sit around in the gate and talk and visit, because that's where you get news, you know. That's where you get news. And Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther did the commandment of Mordecai like as when she had brought up with him. In those days while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, now that you've, you'll notice them two names there, that Big Tham and Teresh, of those which kept the door were wroth and sought to lay hand on the king Xerxes. So this is two of those guys that it had mentioned earlier to, that were bringing the, the uh, he said to bring Vashti to me. So these two guys were very close to the king. And they were plotting to kill him. But they made the mistake of talking to each other about it while they were sitting in the gate and there was other people around and one of the people was Mordecai. And the thing was known to Mordecai who did what? Who told it to Esther. The queen and Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. So Esther said... Hey, these two fellas are plotting to kill you. And my father, my cousin, said it's true. And I'm telling you, it's true. These two guys were plotting to kill you. She certified that it was true. If the queen said it, the king believed it, that was it. So... uh, And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. In other words, they exposed the plot. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree. And it is written in the book of Chronicles before the king. So, Esther made a point to tell the king that Mordecai, this fellow Mordecai, learned of this plot and these guys are going to kill you. So she made a point to mention his name so the king would know who saved his life. Now, the other thing you need to kind of get here is it was not common knowledge that Esther and Mordecai were related. That's obvious when you read throughout the text. It wasn't, it wasn't obvious to everyone involved that they were related. Otherwise, Haman wouldn't have done some of the stupid stuff he did if he would have realized it. He didn't know. You know, He winds up getting upset with Mordecai, but he doesn't realize that he's related to Esther. He doesn't realize it, or he would never have done it, because I don't think he was that dumb. 
But this thing, what Mordecai did, this is going to solidify itself with King Xerxes later on. When, when the chips are down and it really counts, this is going to be an important thing that happened right here. Okay, well, we're going to quit right there. And then we'll pick up we'll pick up in the next section next time. I'm trying to just uh, you know cover quite a bit and, and go over through it so I can try to bring it all together without having to, to read a, a lot of verses so that we can kind of get through some of the chapters a little bit. All right, any question or comment? Okay. Thank you for your attention in today's lesson. If you would like to attend a class in person, classes are held every Sunday at 10 a.m. at 4340 Edgemont Drive in Abilene, Texas.